Here to score it for us is the master of disaster public relations specialist, Mike Paul. Mike Paul, known as the reputation doctor. Well, there's a court of law and there's a court of public opinion. Mike Paul is a crisis PR and reputation management expert. He's all about reputation. Got some tips on rebuilding those reputations. You first have to be transparent and then be accountable for your actions. He's got to get on a truth train right now. There's no ifs or buts in a true apology. You must speak directly to the issues that you've been involved with. You're going to have to have an across-the-board solution that is more than words, and you've got to have actions. Our guest today is Maureen Farrell, who is the co-author of a great new book that's out called The Cult of We. Maureen, welcome to the program. Hi, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you. Well, first, I want to start by getting Elliot's name out there and uh, tell us about your co-author and then we'll, we'll, we'll dive into a little bit more about the book and tell us about your background and Elliot's background, if you could. Sure. So Elliot Brown is my co-author and he's been at the journal for about 10 years. And when he came, he was covering real estate. So he actually came to this story on WeWork before I did. He met Adam Newman, the CEO of WeWork, pretty early on around 2013, 2014. And as, as it was still a relatively nascent company, I mean, in, in the arc of the, in, of the trajectory. He was always sort of shocked covering real estate at the Wall Street Journal about sort of the valuation of WeWork and was, you know, comparing it to other real estate companies and didn't quite get it. He was, so he was sort of constantly raising questions about the valuation, hearing a lot about Adam Newman, about the company and following it. And a lot of his stories at the Journal poked a lot of holes in uh, some of the logic, the economic uh, logic of the company. And he eventually moved out to San Francisco to cover venture capital and kind of stuck with the WeWork story. I'm also a writer at the Wall Street Journal. I've been there since 2013. For the last few years, I've covered IPOs and capital markets. So I sort of came to the story of WeWork 2017, 2018, 2019, as it was there's this cohort of companies like Airbnb, Uber, Lyft, that were essentially the most interesting and largest private companies. So I was following WeWork from that perspective, and Elliot and I teamed up on a bunch of stories much more over the course of 2019 as WeWork was getting ready to go public. And we were sort of writing various things about the company, pointing out some red flags and those everything just accelerated into the potential IPO that never was. What what a great dynamic duo to have someone like Adam Newman go, uh, why are you asking so many questions? By the way, I used to be years ago, uh, executive vice president of economic development for the city of New York. So I know Elliot's background and then for him, nightmare for Adam, by the way, to then be covering some of the real estate barons here in the New York area and, and others, and also understanding the real estate model of a Regis and others that were breaking into the industry way before Adam was around, right? And then to be able to say, no, I'm in this beat now of IPOs and venture capital, a cap, uh, 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 capital in general in the San Francisco area, but I was you. I know you better than you. What a, what an what an amazing way to 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 have an investigative journalist team look at this first for the journal and then as a book. 
Um, it was it was very we really enjoyed working together the whole all along the way. So um, why don't we start with this and then we can jump into various angles. Uh, I understand that you guys put together a top five list of what you believe are the top five things you really need to know within the book. Could you go through some of them? Sure. So I would say, you know, in terms of some of the biggest um, takeaways is, I mean, yes. when you look, I think a lot of what fueled this is this moment in time where private capital was so abundant and chasing after the giant outsized potential returns of tech companies. And, you know, I think that really drives a lot of this story. When you look at it, it was, you know, every so many investors were going after the next Facebook, the next Google, the next giant company and were willing along the way to ignore uh, many red flags. And Adam Newman was an absolutely masterful fundraiser in particular. He was a masterful communicator, selling people on this idea but along the way with fundraising. And he very much saw that that tech companies were the one, this was like a zeitgeist. That was the, the, right. the companies that were raising the most money that were valued the highest. And from there, everything sort of moved along. So he pitched this company as a tech company. I mean, going back to Elliot's background, when he was covering this company, he was a real estate reporter at the Wall Street Journal met Adam Newman and Adam Newman was saying, uh, could you get someone at the journal who covers tech or um, community to cover us? The real estate reporter should not be covering this company. It's not real estate. And if you've been to a WeWork, you know, it's very much real estate. <laughs> of course. And, 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 and as I said, for those of us in New York, maybe not as common in other places around the world or smaller cities, uh, we're also used to seeing shared space environments. Uh, we're, we're used to seeing at least uh, a business that should have been somewhat a competitor, right, to a WeWorks, no matter how he described it, because the virtual world and the remote world was happening in New York at least 10 years before there was ever a WeWorks, correct? Yes, I know it's interesting that you mentioned that because we met a lot of people um, doing shared office space at the beginning. I mean, Adam Newman came up with the idea. We understand he was a student at Baruch College and he became friendly. Um, he came to Baruch College in New York after uh, serving time in the Israeli Navy. He emigrated from Israel, served in the Israeli Navy. So he was somewhat older. He was in his 20s when he started at Baruch. He became friendly with a woman. I think she was in maybe her 50s or 60s. And um, they were they would work on project together. It became kind of fast friends, we heard. And her son owned something called Sunshine Sweets. And it was something very similar to WeWork. And um, she, she really liked Adam. She asked her son to give him a tour of the Sunshine Sweets. Um, so he looked at the model and ultimately years later when he started WeWork and its predecessor Greendesk, he actually used um, the legal documents. So this was a concept that was <laughs> and classic. Yeah, classic Adam, uh, you know, used the similar ones. Um, but there were a number of other competitors to Sunshine Suites. There were just a lot of shared office space uh, companies. but. 
you know, immediately Adam Newman came on the scene and he was ready to go bigger than everyone else. And he did very quickly. And he was a dropout of Baruch though, right? He never finished. He never finished. He was pursuing entrepreneurship um, and had this uh, grand vision, not for shared office space, but for baby clothes. <laughs> and That's this right. is what led him to drop out. It was a company called Crawlers that he started where he put knee pads in baby clothes and thought it was going to take over the whole market for baby clothes. He did not have children at the time. Now he is six. But he thought, you know, babies are going to be uncomfortable when they crawl. This is this is genius. <laughs> And that led him to drop out of Baruch. Um, he eventually, I think, got an honorary degree. He gave a speech at the commencement, um, a great speech. I'll, I've watched it many times. But um, yeah, he did not finish there. Like many great entrepreneurs, dropped out of college. And, and let's talk about him for a, a few seconds. So a lot of people have called him charismatic. But in my professional opinion, I would say he's really a narcissist. And what is the difference between those two? And how did you utilize that in your book as he was able to convince people, not only given the amount of money that they gave him, but to believe that a real estate company should be valued and seen from a viewpoint with an affinity so great to want to work there, give money, not just see it, right? and to change their own orbits and their own minds, hearts, and souls to be convinced that it should be valued like a software company? Well, I would say, I mean, I don't know quite where to put him on this, but I think he was both a, um, I mean, he was so charismatic and narcissist probably, megalomaniacal, very likely. I mean, he, he was talking about um, that a Middle East peace accord would be signed in a WeWork and that he would be in the epicenter of these peace talks, that like he, he would be the one to solve Middle East peace. He thought he would be president of the world and people, like he would sort of laugh as he said it, but people around him were like, no, 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 he really believed that. So there are these, I mean, ambitions that were bordering on lunacy, delusional, I mean, yet he, he went big and achieved a, like well more than a lot of people ever thought he would at the beginning. And people were sort of watched skeptically and he kind of kept, kept performing until he didn't. He had this ability. And one of the ways that Elliot Brown and I would talk about him and with our editor and with our agent when we were writing this book is we sort of thought about him like a magician and <laughs> kind of employing magician-like techniques like don't look here, look here. We're not a real estate company, we're a tech company. And as he was raising money, it kept on shifting to be sort of the, whatever was the hot type of company. And it was always tech-ish, but he, he at the beginning he called himself, we work a physical Facebook, when Facebook was the hottest company. Then he sort of moved into calling it a platform, like Airbnb and Uber, even though it wasn't really that, he started talking a few years later, especially when SoftBank, his big investor, came in, an artificial intelligence <laughs> company. Um, so he knew he knew just what to say. And the iron the very ironic thing was he was not um, technologically savvy. He could barely use a computer. Yet he knew people around him would just be kind of in awe. Of, like he could figure out the buzzwords, employ them in such a way that would just be completely convincing to investors and another 
interesting thing we saw time and time again, and we write about in the book is you would find this big top investor like Masayoshi Son from SoftBank or someone senior at Fidelity, the mutual fund company, who would meet Adam, be completely captivated by the story, say, wow, this is not a real estate company. This is a company that's going to just take over the world and be the most giant company and change everything. Then they would have people underneath them doing due diligence on the company, looking at the numbers, historically, the projections and saying, this makes no sense. These, like This doesn't achieve any of the things that Adam Newman is saying or others. And time and time again, that senior person who is captivated by Adam Newman would just override those concerns and say, eh, who cares about the red flags? He'll figure it out. Let's give him a lot of money. And the, the checks kept on getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And let's talk a little bit about the quant side of this. So what are the numbers? Uh, I, I, one of the bullet points, tell me if I'm correct, is for every dollar that went in, two went out. And overall losses were about $11 billion by the time it was time for him to go. Uh, but give us a little flavor on that from your view of, of what are the numbers that people need to understand? Sure. I mean, that's like, those are the critical ones. The other ones are, you know, is one of the fastest growing companies. You could go almost anywhere in the world by the end. You could go to China, you could go to India, you could go all over Europe. And big swaths of the globe were covered with WeWork. She would go downtown almost at so many cities in the United States. So it was growing so dramatically. And that was something, you know, investors like to see growth. They also want at some point a path to profitability. And what WeWork was doing was as its numbers were growing, as its revenue, it was their, its losses were growing just as dramatically, sometimes even more quickly. So it was sort of like, I mean, you could build anything theoretically that way. I mean, you could, if you spend just as much as you lose. Um, so there was no true path to profitability that anyone could see. And yeah, it's a, it's a dangerous proposition, basically. Was part of the attractiveness besides the pitch, besides it being other people's money and not your own personal money uh, and, and so many other factors that he also understood the amount of space in the world that was commercial, that was available to be retrofitted with a WeWork world? Completely. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. I mean, the bankers uh, and investors like to talk about the TAM, the total addressable market, and it's huge. So you could throw out this number in the trillions, and he did, and say this is all ours potentially. But it's also you know, they were they were going after this market and uh, changing a lot of this market and commercial real estate into WeWorks. But then I mean, that was also where they started running into trouble. At first, it was started as this, um, you know, for solo entrepreneurs or small businesses would go and it would be this beautiful space. You could get everything you want in an office all in one. It made it very easy. There was a real convenience factor. There's the serendipity factor. You'd go in, you know, maybe you're a lawyer, you find a million clients there, you're a graphic designer, same thing. People are making these like spontaneous uh, connections, especially the millennials. If you right. pitch it as this, like work is changing. I think there's a truth to that. Like people want to be in cool spaces, want to work differently. But then, I mean, there's only so much growth from that group of individuals 
like to go after big ticket growth, you have to start going after enterprise customers, big corporations. And they did. And it's an interesting concept for Amazon to go, especially now, and they're moving into it in the post Adam Newman era. But, you know, Amazon's going to grow office space, shrink it or anyone else, JP Morgan, and you go and get three floors of a WeWork, and then you could scale it back. It right. just gets, it gets expensive. And there are all sorts of other logistical things that you need to do to, retro, to retrofit space for Amazon. You know, they're going to want something different than JP Morgan would want. There's security concerns. So it was a grand idea and they started building it out, but it wasn't necessarily a profitable one. At least they had not figured out a way to make it that. Tell me about his wife. <laughs> uh, his wife is a, a really key part of this book and I think this whole story. And basically he meets her when he had started Green Desk and she grew up in New York. She grew up in a, in a sort of very wealthy family. She had these kind of Hollywood royalty connections. She was a cousin of Gwyneth Paltrow. She went to sort of elite schools in New York, had a, just an, like a constellation of friends with a lot of wealth around her. She grew up wealthy. She knew a lot of people from these sort of dynastic families in New York. And she, so she met Adam. Adam, we understand, was always kind of had big dreams and really just would always talk even growing up in Israel on a kibbutz, these like communal spaces. He would tell people, I'm going to be really like rich someday. I'm going to be a millionaire. Um, I want this grand life. So he met her and it sort of immediately, it seems like sort of made his ambitions go even more extreme. And he kind of saw a world he didn't know quite as much before. So she played a big role from the beginning. Um, at first it was more peripheral, but you would see her sort of, you know, connecting him to people to raise money from. He also, she also connected him. She was very into Kabbalah. She had moved to Holly, to Los Angeles to try her hand at acting after she went to college. Did not do very well with acting. <laughs> she didn't really land many roles, but she made a lot of connections in Hollywood, even outside of Gwyneth Paltrow, her cousin. People like Ashton Kutcher, we understand that she went every Wednesday night, she would go to these dinners at his house with when he was married to Demi Moore and they would be Kabbalah dinners, learning about this mystical, um, spiritual, not religion, but this idea. And she sort of took those connections back with her. Adam was so excited to meet people like Ashton Kutcher and also became very involved in Kabbalah in New York. And some of those ideas factored into the company. I mean, even verbatim, some of the verbiage they'd use. He had a spiritual leader from Kabbalah come and host meetings um, with senior executives over <laughs> like weekly meetings to talk through things. Um, so that it sort of was infused into the company, this Kabbalah, other things as, as time went on, she actually, Rebecca Paltrow Newman, became more and more involved in the company on the marketing side, um, jumped around to a lot of different positions. But especially around the time of the IPO going public, she had already been retroactively um, made a founder. She wasn't a founder at the beginning. And at some point, they changed their documents. It was Adam Newman, Miguel McKelvey, his original co-founder. And Rebecca Newman became the third co-founder. And people are like, that's strange. 
And anyway, she, she played this role, some of the more outlandish things she seemed to play a big role in as they were getting ready for the IPO. And some of the things that actually, especially around corporate governance that really hurt the company. I mean, one such example was that uh, she would be one of the people to pick a successor to Adam Newman if anything ever happened to him. That was a, just felt like a huge red flag yeah. to different investors I spoke to. Because she is him if they're married, right? One of the things we know people in business who, let's say, have had credit problems and everything goes in the wife's name, right? And then the wife gets more involved with the business because even though she might not understand the business or she doesn't have an interest the same way that he does, that she's involved because it's the only way that we, the family, me, can still do the things we need to do. And if you're adding an, an additional person, that's double what his package was able to get in general. Exactly. And they, it sounded like they both very much spoke about WeWork, even as they were going public as a family business. They both had a lot of family members who worked there, a lot of friends in very like senior roles. And, you know, they would, he would talk about, and she would talk about handing this down to their children. That was the real specific way in which it was sort of written in potentially into the IPO. They, they wound up cutting that to try to see if they could salvage the IPO. Um, but it did not work. So tell me, as we continue with finance a little bit, the big names involved, you mentioned, uh, SoftBank, also JP Morgan Chase, Credit Suisse, and, and, and several others. You mentioned Fidelity also had an investment. I think they had heard a competitor had put in about five and they doubled it and wanted to go into 10 based on that same charisma, even though others who had looked at the due diligence said, yeah, probably not the right move. Um, this isn't just a story about Adam and his wife. This is a story about how you can dupe or give a pass to the due diligence that you've done to be sucked in by the charismatic acts of a person like this. What is, what is the lesson learned by these major financial institutions and what have they promised since being duped? Because obviously their reputation and brand took a hit too, being associated with it. It's interesting. I mean, I think the lesson just for everyone from this is like, I think there are these like signals that are out there. It's like, oh, wow, JP Morgan is around this company, Goldman Sachs. I mean, they were both their underwriters, but their wealth management division invested. Fidelity, you think it's the most sort of sober, smart investor. They invest, you know, the vast majority of Americans' retirements. T. Rowe Price, same thing. They're mutual fund investors. They're not going after crazy things. So, and SoftBank, Harvard's endowment invested in WeWork. You, you wow. feel like you have these stamps on a company and it's like, oh, they must have done really extreme due diligence. If they say it's okay, it must be safe. It must be actually a really good investment. And I think that's, you know, a faulty, flawed way of thinking. Um, but it were, you know, it's kind of, it becomes a virtuous or vicious cycle when that happens. These stamps of approval and people don't keep on looking deeper when, um, I mean, at just each step of the way, we were just floored by the due, the due diligence, ignoring it or sort of the, you know, their ability to just ignore these red flags. But to your point, 
I'll give you an example. We did an episode about models in crisis, and it dealt with the various world worlds of powerful men. And of course, that also meant Jeffrey Epstein and Bill Gates. And Bill Gates just this week did some further explaining as to how he got duped by a Jeffrey Epstein. But in his apology he included, he gave him legitimacy. He has been schooled and counseled by many since that that impact is more than just an individual impact. You are Microsoft. You are San Francisco tech, global tech, right? Once he has that cachet, it opened up a million other doors. Is that the similarity you're talking about here? Completely. I think it's a great analogy. It's like, I think someone like an Adam Newman, I mean, I'm much more absolutely horrible, uh, Jeffrey Epstein, it's like sort of leveraging those points of contact, I mean, can go so far. And, and I think there's a certain type of person who knows how to sort of maximize like each each person in their orbit, each new person they bring in. And Adam Newman did that constantly. And the people just seemed to get more, you know, higher and higher levels. It was like the masters of the universe, the global leaders. And he, he really saw himself on a par with them. And, but the crazy thing is they kind of did too. People were really like rushing to meet him. I mean, we have a scene in the book where um, he meets, uh, he goes to the Senate and he meets Chuck Schumer and uh the, he's on the senate floor and he tells his underlings like no more mayors i'm only dealing with senators from now on <laughs> unbelievable uh ironically i used to work for a u.s senator from new york so that uh i've met folks like him let's just say that um in addition to the elliot san francisco connection and the desire to be like uh, tech firms, early on, the second office of WeWork was in San Francisco, and was that for him to have more time to go out there to learn more about what he wanted to become? Was it a part of the foundation of making sure it wasn't just seen as a real estate play? How do you see that move to San Francisco so early on playing out to enable him to hoodwink so many? I think that was, I think all the things you just mentioned were like to make it to understand the tech world, understand Silicon Valley, California tech, and also to get, give sort of uh, more credibility in that regard. He also, one of his first investments, um, first larger investments came from the venture capital firm, Benchmark Capital. And I mean, they're really one of the top VC investors in Silicon Valley. Yes. They were in eBay. They were one of the early investors in eBay. They have this pretty incredible track record as an investor. So when he landed that, I mean, no matter what, that also gave him a certain cachet. Um, but he also learned from them and continued to learn. I mean, we one of the things we write about in the book and we heard, I think this was before the benchmark investment, is Sean Parker, um, the one of the early investors in Facebook. And he was a, like a confidant at the beginning of Mark Zuckerberg. He, uh, Adam Newman got to know him just through his social circles. Him and his wife would go over to Sean Parker's house and meet a lot of like the tech billionaires or really successful tech investors. And we understand that he was like, his eyes sort of like popped hearing about their lifestyles and the private jets. And Sean Parker had like a, I don't know, a 10 bedroom house at the West Village and would have all these like crazy parties. So 
he was really, uh, that also intrigued him. And the funny thing was we heard that he would pitch them on his company, Sean Parker and others who were big tech investors. And um, he would say, oh, I have the physical Facebook. You, you know Facebook, but I have a physical Facebook. And they would all kind of laugh at him and did not invest, but. <laughs> I have to say external to the sex and the, and the debauchery of Epstein, so Epstein-esque. I mean, it's just frightening to hear the comparisons in the need to be around those like that, that he uh, got the branding, got the reputation from uh, the 1% world in various ways. And then there was another side of him still kind of touching that world when it came to drugs. And can you tell us about one of his uh, plane flights and, and what happened with the stewardesses on that flight because of drugs? Well, we understand. So eventually, um, I mean, this is before and after this, but he convinced his board, he convinced investors to let him buy a private plane, which is almost virtually unheard of for a private company. And there's all sorts of uh, research that, you know, once a company has a private jet, they tend to not do as well. There's there's a researcher who's looked at that and that you could kind of imagine why maybe it makes you, you're not making the smartest decisions with your capital. That's right. Yeah, so he had a private jet, but he also before that would re very regularly fly on private jets that they would rent. And um, there are several occasions that we understand that he was smoking, him and friends were like smoking uh, marijuana throughout the flight. And um, there's even a scene where he's like, they someone complains that they were like, him and friends were all spitting tequila at each other. And it like the plane was such a mess at the end of it. Um, but there was one in which the stewardess all had to put on like face masks because there was so much um, marijuana smoke in uh, in the cabin. Um, but another one, I mean, this became very central to sort of their decision to postpone the IPO and actually led to the ouster of Adam Newman was Elliot Brown, my colleague, co-author. He wrote this story. He had been working on it for almost a year. And it was, he finally put it out right around the time of the IPO. And one of the anecdotes in this story was that Adam went on a plane to Israel. And when he arrived there, he put, marijuana was put in a cereal box and left there. And it was found on the plane and there was sort of an uproar. They weren't, they did not take the plane back. And that was in this article in the Wall Street Journal. And it was funny, like within a day or two, the day it ran, someone called me and the IPO had not been called off yet. Um, maybe it had been postponed. I can't remember exactly. But this banker called me and said, um, Adam Newman will not be the CEO of WeWork within the next like 24 to 48 hours. And he's like explicitly because of this anecdote that it's a, you know potentially a felony that he transported drugs on an international flight so no one can stand behind him anymore that's been in the paper um it's out there he no one can be no one can banks can't underwrite him anymore or else you're sort of aiding and abetting this the board can't stand behind him and i don't it maybe was a little more than 48 hours it was ultimately it was four or five days but it was kind of amazing it was unthinkable at that time that adam newman would not be the ceo of WeWork, and wow. you know, this, very quickly this happened and he was out. And how ironic 
for that reason. I mean, a million other reasons why. But ultimately, it comes down to reputation that those that had backed him did not want to be associated with a felony tied to drugs. You, you let so many other compliance issues, <laughs> ethical issues, immoral issues uh, of various kinds, perhaps even illegal issues, uh, dealing with compliance uh, passed before the drug issue, and that's the one that seems to take him down. Or was it the house of cards, and once that one card was pulled, everything else really was uh, an opportunity to lay it all on that, to let it fall? I definitely think it was both of those. I mean, that was definitely one thing that everyone could point to, but this house of cards, I mean, they were, you know, one of the things also that happened, I think, when they released their uh, prospectus for their IPO, I mean, immediately people, the world saw this document and it, the company was a laughing stock. Adam Newman was a laughing stock. It had so many crazy things written into it. They really pushed that envelope in terms of corporate governance. As we said earlier, things like his wife choosing a successor of the company, detailed sort of his unusual entanglements with the company, leasing properties to WeWork, um, taking a lot of money, selling stock, having huge loans tied to his stock. I mean, there's just red flag after red flag after red flag um, that raised concerns. So it was just over the course of the m a month or so, this document was made public and everything started to kind of crumble. And what from what we heard at the time and learned so much more about reporting the book was his own like psychology. Like he seemed to, people kind of watched him unravel too as this all was falling apart. Wow. Tell me about this, uh, what people call the Israeli connection. Was it a combination of being cultural and economic? And, and how does that play into the story overall? I mean, in, in various ways, I guess. I mean, he emigrated from Israel to New York. Um, there, he definitely made, he, he brought some friends from Israel into the company. He had some connections to financiers. One of the, uh, one of the early investors related to Benchmark um, was in Israel at the time. He had heard a lot about Adam Newman just through mutual connections. I don't know necessarily how much it plays in. I mean, one thing, I've read the book Startup Nation on Israel. And it's, a, I mean, it's an amazing book and you kind of see that just how it's had this amazing growth of startups in Israel that's really kind of helped transform its economy. So there is like a, a real like successful entrepreneurial culture there and tech and I mean, the, the military. Definitely tech. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so I think there were some connections uh, there that he made, you know, and this, you know, knew probably more entrepreneurs, even just coming out of the military. There's a there's a culture there that, um, you know, you learn certain things in the military. Everyone is in the military in Israel. You, you have to serve. Um, so I think there is something there, but I I don't know how much more than that. I mean, they had offices there. You had family ties. But um, yeah, I don't know if I would make too much of that beyond that. How'd you like to wrap up? Oh, what's what's the most important point that we haven't touched on yet? I mean, I guess the most important point is that um, it just seems like this company in plain sight, there were so many red flags that were 
ignored time and time again just for this rush to try to kind of cash in on this company that it could have been the next big thing and overlooking red flags time and time again, both from Adam Newman, from the company's business model. And what we really hope the takeaway is that people read this book and this doesn't happen again in the same way. You know, that people kind of stand up at the moment they should, whether it's an investor, you don't have to give founders control. I think there's this idea right now that founders have all the power and everyone talks about Steve Jobs, that he, you know, but they didn't have Jeff Bezos. They didn't have this founder control and this founder control just seems like it can cause a lot of issues. So we, yes. we hope it serves as like a blueprint for what not to do in a lot of ways. Cause I, I do think Adam Newman was a visionary entrepreneur. He had a great idea. I think few people in the world could have executed like he did up until a point. And I don't know, sometimes I think it's like the tragedy is if people, you know, some of the most sophisticated investors in the world, sophisticated board members, if people just stood up to him, maybe this company could have had a very different um, trajectory. So I hope people take lessons from it. I have to say, uh, based on the current state of the world, it does not seem like <laughs> that's happening. I mean, we're seeing wild companies, pre-revenue companies go out to the public markets and these uh, special purpose acquisition corporations, SPACs. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of extreme risk taking, maybe not on the size or scale of we work in Adam Newman, but, um, you know, questionable companies coming to market. So they have, uh, it does not seem like the world has woken up to it yet, but we hope we really hope so. Well, I have one follow-up to that, which I think has to be said. So obviously we've had other major scandals that have been even bigger than this. For example, instruments that should have never been sold, right? Uh, mortgage crisis that we had. Those that played in it said, we learned our lesson. We're really never going to have anything like that. You who study it know that's a lie. There's been many who still continue. They tweaked it. There are many products out there and many services out there, not just in the financial world, but in the world of, of corporate business in general, that is still unethical, immoral, illegal on a daily basis. Um, what's the checks and balances to that? How do we, either as investors or consumers or government, regulatory, what would your advice be in understanding these various instruments and various types of organizations if you had the opportunity to make a change for greater accountability what would what would it be oh gosh it's a great question because i think to, to exactly your point i mean it's not going to history won't repeat itself but it'll just take a new form and we're probably won't have the same mortgage crisis all government has put in place all these things to make that difficult I mean, we're not going the too big to fail banks I mean, government comes steps in and tries to solve the problem but it's just then the financial world is very sophisticated for better and worse um so it just there are permutations then we won't see another probably mortgage crisis in the same way but it'll be something else it's a it's a very tricky question because 
even when you think about how this could have been stopped, something like WeWork, essentially the private markets are just not regulated the same way as the public markets. David Solomon, the CEO of Goldman Sachs said after the fact, I mean, their bank was in one of the underwriters helped Adam Newman write the prospectus for this company. But he said, oh, the process worked because retail investors saw it. The average investor saw this document <laughs> and didn't want to buy the company. So there was like a protection there. I don't think that's the answer. I think it's right to a certain extent, the process did work, you know, the shining the light on it. But I don't think there is one answer. I mean, you hope the media stands up and questions these companies. I think we need to do that constantly. And but you think every at each piece of it. And I don't I don't think regulation is not the answer, but I don't think it it solves these problems because it, it can only solve a certain one what just happened, which doesn't necessarily anticipate the future. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun. What a great book. The Cult of We. Please pick it up. We'll put the cover up again for people to see it. And we'll we'll make sure we also know that they can buy it from Amazon and a million other places online and also in bookstores all over the place. So thank you so much, Maureen. I appreciate it. And thank Elliot for being your uh, co-author and we'll make sure that we have a picture of him and some details also in the interview. Wonderful. Thank you. Our t-shirt of the week is Triumph 105, which if you remember a few, just a few weeks ago was a guest on our program and the prayer symbol I love. I also love the C which equals 100 and the five that equals five, a dollar five for the cheeseburger. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and look at the episode. And uh, what a great organization. Uh, they not only have a for-profit section, but they're also uh, created a nonprofit that is giving back to the community. They've got some great paraphernalia on their website, great t-shirts, hoodies, and other things. So check them out. So the name of the book, The Cult of We, by Elliot Brown and Maureen Farrell, both of the Wall Street Journal. Cult is a key word. Delusion is in the subtitle. You got to read this book. I mean, for a startup to have these kind of valuations be duped by some of the biggest brands in finance and for it to be looked at not as a real estate company, but like a startup, like the next Bezos or, or uh, uh, other founders in the tech world, just crazy. Hopefully we've learned lessons from it. This book does a great job of talking about every detail that was just nonsense. Uh, pick it up. Hopefully you enjoy the interview as well. And please don't forget to follow us and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. See you next week. And remember, less head work, more heart work. Peace. <laughs>